Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, a product of Talent 409. I am your host, Colin Cernelia. Thank you for joining us today. Go to talent409.com to learn more about how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. This podcast is available on Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Radio.com, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. Please consider taking a minute and on Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and review. Doing this helps other dynamic leaders find us, and it helps us find other dynamic leaders. And don't forget, you can now ask Alexa to play your favorite Apple Podcasts on any Amazon-enabled device. Just say, Alexa, play the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Getting Dynamic Leaders with Colin Cherniglia from Apple Podcasts. On to my featured guest today, I will be talking with Pat Wees. Pat is a teacher at Christian Brothers Academy in Syracuse, New York. He was an outfielder for the Lemoyne College baseball team, and he was named Man of the Year in the Northeastern 10 Conference, which is the conference that Lemoyne College is a part of. Part of the reason that Pat was named for that award was he overcame a bone cancer during his collegiate experience. We will get into all of that and more. So let's not wait any longer and let's discover our talent altitude. Here is my conversation with Pat Wees. Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my guest on the line with me is Pat Weiss. Pat, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, Colin. Y'all, thanks, for, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, uh, to dive in and get talking. Absolutely. I'm excited to get through all we have to talk about in this conversation today. We have plenty to get to, and I'm not going to spoil it for everybody. I want to give you an opportunity first, though, before we get too far away to tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself. So please tell us, who are you? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm a Northeast boy. I'm a Central New York. Uh, I was born uh, in New York City, but eventually made my way to Syracuse uh, with my mom and dad. And so I grew up in Syracuse, New York, ever since I was about three to four years old. Uh, grew up here, went to elementary school here, went to high school, obviously, and then I stayed uh, pretty close uh, home here in Syracuse. I went to a a local college uh, named Lemoyne College here in upstate New York. And then outside of college, again, I don't know, I just enjoyed my time in central New York. Um, I'll get more into my baseball career at Lemoyne and, and my summer baseball and, and everything that had to offer and taking me kind of up and down the, the East Coast. And I, ever since um, I was up and down the East Coast, I played in Virginia, I played up in Vermont. Um, it was always nice coming back home. So everyone says, well, how, how do you just stay in one spot? Um, my Tom, you know, to be honest, for, for 26 years, I've been all over the place. New York City, I've been to Puerto Rico, Virginia, Vermont, and uh, I don't know, something about home um, always stuck with me. So I got a job here in Syracuse, and uh, where I'm working as a um, middle school teacher at the high school that I attended at Christopher Academy. Um, I'm in my fourth year here at CBA, and I absolutely love it. 
Um, I didn't go to school, to be honest, to be a teacher. And I'm sure we'll get more into that that later when we talk about my, co- my college career. But it kind of just bounced my lap, and I, I absolutely enjoy every second of it. And I'm looking to further my education to uh, leader, kind of like a leader man. man so I'm looking forward um, to my future. I'm very excited for the position that I'm at right now. Awesome. And I'm just going to take a guess here, but do you like snow? You know, I love snow. <laughs> Everyone, being up here, I was always around it. And I have friends that moved out and they go, they go down south and, and they love it all. But I just can't imagine not doing the four seasons. Uh, it's something about change. I'm kind of like addicted to, to change. Um, I, I hate getting complacent with things. And, you know, when the fall comes, the winter comes, the spring comes, the summer comes, they all, they all bring a different feel to, to my life. And I, I kind of I like that. What do you think that attitude, maybe we're jumping too far ahead, but being uh, addicted to change, I don't know that that's necessarily something that most people would say about themselves. I think that the natural inclination is to be resistant to change. And you see it all the time, whether it's people in your personal life, whether it's celebrities, whether it's professional athletes, change takes acclimation. It takes some time. So for you to be, you to say that you're addicted to change is definitely refreshing and it's somewhat unique. So I'd love to hear a little bit maybe as to why you've adopted that attitude in your life. Yeah, I know. And I, and I say that to people that I'm kind of, I do like change. And don't get me wrong, as, as humans, we are creatures of habit. And we always have our little tendencies that we always fall back to, which I do as well. Uh, but for like the bigger picture uh, with things, I look around and I just see too many people that just go through the motion when they wake up. And to me, that doesn't really bring a lot of excitement. Now, I wasn't always that way. You know, people go, well, you never went out with Syracuse. Uh, so I guess that's been that one consistent, like that one constant with me. But no, no matter where... Um, Physically, right, the emotional part of you, the intellectual part of you is always, always going. You might stop going physically, but the mind is an incredible thing. And the only way that the mind can get better is if you're thrown into different scenarios where um, you are you're bound to fail, right? You're supposed to fail, you want to fail. And I see too many people that they fail at something and then all of a sudden they kind of give up and they go back to uh, what they you know were acclimated to. I guess where that where that change came from me uh, obviously it hasn't always been there. But when I was so I went to Lemoyne College, being a Division One athlete, you had to juggle a lot of things. You had to juggle classes, you had to juggle going to practice, practice for three to four hours, then lifting weights. So you're kind of always on the go. You're always on the go. And it actually happened that my going into my senior year. This is where I, it really hit me that you got to be accepting of everything that you are dealt with the cards that you have, but you got to be able to play uh, those cards. You're not able to change like the situation, but you got to move around and play your cards with that advantage. So going into my senior year, I was actually I was actually diagnosed with osteoporosis, a form of bone cancer. Uh, and I experienced this pain as I was between at one playing baseball, but, you know, a lot of athletes on this podcast, I'm sure they can all attest to that. You know, we get banged up. We don't care. We're back on that field. And all you want to do is you want to perform. And we know that a little function can't hurt us. So my junior year, I was experiencing pain 
by right means. But, you know, once the game actually started, that adrenaline kind of kicked in. I uh, kicked in after that pain for the time being. And I would go probably three to four pain months. So uh, then the next two weeks, uh, I would be a ever. Where I had a, I lived in a townhouse, townhouse just outside of, outside of our campus. So I had to walk to class. There'd be times, uh, class time would come and I, my, my other teammates class. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure my dad and my mom, they know this. I, I told them this. But I, I told them that sometimes I wouldn't go to class just because I couldn't. Bring myself to stand up because the pain was just so unbearable. So every time I told my dad, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He, he took me some people. We went to uh, the trainer at Lemoyne, and they ran all their diagnostic tests and everything that they could, but there wasn't something that they could physically see. Um, you know, the ACL was fine, the FCL was fine. So they really just talked it up to a bone group. Um, and then that summer, I went away to Vermont. Like I said, I played. Uh, three years of summer baseball in different states. So I played a, a NECDL in, uh, with, with Vermont, and the pain just kept coming back. By the time I started my senior year, the same thing happened. I couldn't, like, if I had a class on the second, second floor and there was no elevator, in my mind, I was like, I can't go because I'm scared. There's just so much pain. Yeah, so about a year had gone by with all these pain. So my dad takes me to his office Associate the word with cancer. Dad uh, said I had cancer, so I had to go and run more tests right then and there at the same time. So I jump in the MRI machine, and, and there's uh, it was about an hour. As that time goes on, I'm kind of sitting. I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, but you're in that machine, it is definitely loud. Right? You got buzzers, you got beepers just going off, going off, and everything. And all I had were my thoughts of that I had people. Um, and growing up, right, no one close to me really was affected by this disease. So I wasn't really confounded. Um, obviously, you hear about all these stories about famous people or friends that might have it, but no one really close to me had So after we run the test, um, I get in the car with my dad, and I just tell him, I'd either just drop me off, I got to just talk to some friends. And as I always do, I go on my phone, or as, we, as anybody do, we're concerned about something, right? We go to Google. <laughs> great, Google's a great thing. So I, I Google the, uh, the death rate for osteosarcoma. And two numbers show up, 66% and 33%. Uh, 66% was the chance of survival if the tumor was localized. So if it had not spread, I still had a 66% chance of living. Now, if the tumor had spread, uh, then that chance of living actually went down to 33%. So if it had spread, the chance of survival for any osteosarcoma patient is a 66% chance of dying. So if you really think about it, if you have a, a, a die, right, a six-sided die, one from six, you go ahead and roll it. If my tumor had spread, 
then I was basically four numbers on that die of showing up to do that. So if my numbers were one, two, four, go ahead and go die. If one, two, three, or four come up, I'm basically dead, to put it simply. So basically what we had to do is we had to go to Dana-Farber in Boston to run more tests. So we go to Dana-Farber, and they run more tests for a couple of days, and fortunately the results come back that the tumor uh, is localized. Uh, so they had to go in, and what my dad calls it is they had to go in and give me a knee replacement on steroids. So what they had to do was they had to take out about half my femur, half my tibia, and then all the muscles, the tendons, uh, the ligaments uh, right in my knee. So I basically have an extended knee replacement, and then I had to go through about six months of intense chemotherapy. That was as my senior year I was going on. So that whole mindset we were talking about where, like, I'm addicted to change, I was kind of given the biggest curveball being a baseball guy of my life. <laughs> and I had I had two things. I could just sit there and accept it, or I could understand that this is out of my control, something a lot bigger than me is happening that I have no control about. But I can just go ahead and I can play the hand that I'm given to the best of my ability. So... I kind of, from there on out, I've kind of always lived my life of when something does happen, don't complain. And I, I grew up that way. My dad is, is one of my uh, biggest influences out there. And he had the same uh, attitude. He just attacked everything. He basically had a positive attitude, and he didn't shy away from anything. If something didn't go his way, he just showed us that, all right, find another way to get it done. To this day, that's probably one of the biggest things that I'm, I'm thankful for is that mindset of you just can't give in. Us as humans, right? We go through every single day. No one goes through every single day in perfect day. Now, it might be near perfect, uh, but some other days, it might be 99% disaster, and you might just throw in the towel. But the biggest thing that I've learned from where I am right now is that you just got to be able to make an adjustment. If something doesn't go your way, find another way around it to make that thing successful. Um, so that's kind of why like, I accept change. I accept, I accept obstacles. And it's a good thing. It's the only way you can learn to grow is being put in a position where you have to make a decision and you're uncomfortable. Right? Once you're uncomfortable, you have to understand that it's a good uncomfortable. Stay with it. If you come out to the other end, then it's for the better. Uh, that's amazing perspective to have. And obviously, it came at the expense of going through an extreme difficulty, something that the majority of us won't face, at least at that stage in our lives. Uh, you know, that's pretty early to, to go through something along that. And it was really interesting. So the, the reason that you and I are connected is through a mutual connection, Kate Waltman, who I had on the podcast. And I remember her talking about in, in her situation, it was her father that uh, got sick and, and passed away. And just the, the ability to have be, be broken open as she put it and, and come through on the other side and have all that perspective. And I think in general, and we spent a good t amount of time talking about this, both on the podcast and afterwards, just offline that you need to go through moments of adversity in order to truly understand what life is really about, or at least <laughs> as what we can as human beings uh, understand life to be about. You've obviously experienced a moment of adversity that is unparalleled to a lot of us and your perspective as a result of that is super positive. It's, it's 
really encouraging, I think is, is a great word to use because I see that and I, and I, I'm not trying to uh, put these people down, but I see people that, that get sick, that, that have cancer, that have a disability and they use that as an excuse to be lazy or to complain or to blame all of their quote unquote problems on other people. And that's not the attitude and that's not the perspective I'm getting from you. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, yeah, that's absolutely true. And when I, when people find out about my story and they go, man, I had no idea that you went through that. You had such a positive outlook on everything. You know, I, I can't take full credit. I mean, yeah, it's, it's part of who I am. But growing up, I had the world's support from my parents. I got two older brothers. I got a younger sister. Um, I got a great family that's in Syracuse. And it's kind of just the culture of growing up that made me or formed me to have that way of life. Being an athlete, my dad always made sure that I played three sports. Never wanted me to specialize in one sport because these sports, so I played soccer, baseball, or soccer in the fall, baseball, basketball in the winter, and then baseball in the spring. My dad was a big advocate of not specializing in the sport because the sport gives you a different set of skill sets along the way. And each sport, right, being athletes, we know that and in practice or a game, that's the that's the one of the times where almost nothing you just goes your way. Play soccer, you play basketball, when you play baseball, and you talk about the game of baseball, right? If you fail, if you hit three hundred, you fail seventy percent of the time. Right. So if you fail in seventy percent of the time, it's actually gonna end gonna uh, result in you ending up a Hall of Fame. And so it's just kind of those things growing up. That, you know, my dad, don't whine, don't complain. You know, have a positive outlook on things. Things aren't going to go your way. You're going to get a bad call on you. But you just got to go ahead and take that next step and take on what's going to happen. So that's, a, I mean, life in sports really just prepared me for uh, basically the ultimate challenge that was thrown my way. And I, I wouldn't be able to say, I don't, I know I wouldn't be able to say that where I am now, everything that. Uh, we're doing with uh, the foundation, right? And I see it as a teacher. Um, a lot of people struggle, or a lot of teachers, a lot of adults struggle when students don't do what you ask them. And a lot of the questions, what's wrong with them? Oh, why are they acting this way? What is making them feel? Right? Obviously, everything that we do needs to be learned from our past. We just don't go ahead and whether it's reading a book, you watch YouTube. Everything that we learn or try out or we see is from people in the past. Now, if you have that moral compass and you can follow people, then down the road, it's just So I guess I was very, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm very blessed of being surrounded by such amazing people that when this thing did happen, I was able to take it on a little bit on my own book. Two things. You obviously had, as you mentioned, a really great supporting system at home. That's probably the single most important aspect of everything. But I think as an athlete and in particular as as a baseball player, that's where you went furthest with sports. You are uniquely positioned to deal with failure and to deal with disappointment. <laughs> uh, as you as you mentioned, a 300 hitter, which for people that 
don't play the game of baseball or don't understand the analogy, a 300 hitter in Major League Baseball is considered Hall of Fame worthy. So nowhere in sports, nowhere in the business world can you be good at something 30% of the time and and be considered Hall of Fame worthy. <laughs> right, right. You're just, you're not going to make it. And it's really amazing. I've I had somebody recently say this. I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but they were like, if you really think about it, when you play baseball, it's always one against nine. And it's amazing that even three times out of 10, you can get a base hit because it's the percentages are just so much against you. So I think being able to have been brought up in an environment like that where you'd probably already tasted your, your, uh, your failures and, and those type of things, but being able to, to learn from that and use that in your personal life when you were going through everything that you outlined for us, I I think just uniquely positioned you to, to be able to succeed and to steal Kate's phrase to, to be broken open (laughs) afterwards. So, um, I I appreciate you sharing uh, all of that, and I know um, obviously sometimes that can, uh, regardless of the time and the detachment from it all, it can still be difficult, especially if you're the one experiencing it. So I certainly appreciate you uh, sharing all that with us. Yeah, no problem. We learn from other people's stories. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk about a sponsor of this show, my own business, Sweat With Stods. Head over to sweatwithstods.com to get the workout that suits your needs, whether you work out at home, in the gym, or you're brand new to fitness, there's something for everyone. Podcast listeners also get a special discount with code DYNAMIC at checkout, so be sure to head on over there after this. Thanks, and back to the show. Let's. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the athletic part of your upbringings, and just you. You mentioned your dad being instrumental in not wanting you to specialize in a sport, and it, it just seems like you have a, a passion for athletics and sports in, in general. And there was a lot of good takeaways that you learned over the course of your life. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about? I don't know, maybe, maybe some of the key lessons uh, outside of uh, the, the biggest one, obviously that we just went through, but some, yeah. some other lessons that you were able to learn through athletics that um, whether it's as a teacher or uh, just people who are listening to this podcast, maybe they can take those lessons and apply them to your lives as well. So one of the big things is going back to uh, my parents, they growing up that they always wanted us to stay active and they always wanted us to play multiple sports. And along that, those lines, they never forced us to play a particular sport. So they were always open for us to try new things and to figure out the niche that we wanted. But their big thing was to always be active and always play multiple sports. And growing up, what that did, a couple of things that did for me was playing three different sports growing up in, in high school was that, that pushed me into more friend groups. So not everyone played every sport. So I had so during the fall season I had a good group of friends that were soccer, basketball, you know, basketball, and baseball, baseball. So it forced me um, to be able to communicate well with a lot of different varieties of, of people. And to this day, I feel so comfortable with one talk in front of people. Uh, two other things that come raise my mind is I was in elementary school and it's weird that I keep talking about my dad. I guess I should call him after this. Oh, what a great job he did. 
but after an elementary school game, we went, we played a team called St. Pat's. It's on the west side here of Syracuse. And you walk into their gym, and it's one of those gyms where the three-point line doesn't extend all the way. Um, so basically, you can't hit a three-pointer from the, the corner because it's out of bounds. Feeling couldn't have been more than, I don't know, 20 feet tall, 25 feet tall. And now we're in sixth grade, and we had a really good team. But we go into that game, and we actually lose. And throughout the game, I just kept getting so frustrated because my first couple shots, and then now I would get frustrated, and then all of a sudden I would take turnovers. And throughout the throughout the game, I just knew I was like, oh man, when I go home, my dad is going to hate. So I get in the car, or so so we're leaving the gym, and my mom was there too, and I wanted to go home with my mom. But my dad just goes, nope, get in the car with me, you're coming home. <laughs> and so I, I go, oh, here we go. So I get in the car, <laughs> and about the 15-minute drive home, he has to go talk to us. So to make matters worse, I'm just driving there. I know I know, I did things I wasn't supposed to do, but he didn't say anything. He just let me think about it for a little bit. And then we got home, and he just turned to me, and he goes, you know what I'm going to say? I was like, yeah, I know. i got to stop complaining. Right? out of my control. I can't control the size of the court. I can't control uh, how tall the team um, I get. I just got to go ahead and deal with it and come out better because the other team has to go through the same thing to get I did. So making that adjustment and not everything is the same thing with baseball. You know, you play on field all the way around. Maybe the infield is nice. Maybe the top. Maybe the outfield is both. Or it's got some, it's got some filter. Pivot, so get a bad hop. Oh, you, you bobble it and the guy goes from first to third. So it, it, it reinforced the idea of that not everything is a cookie cutter perfect situation. That you gotta stop complaining every single time that something goes. You gotta take a little accountability on yourself that you knew going that things are different. Um, and that you have to have that mindset of just going out there, having grit and just well, that was one of the biggest uh, things that I learned at a young age was stop complaining. That's going to make a bad call. Yeah, got to stop complaining. Got to move on. Okay, so we've talked about uh, a lot of the lessons that you can learn through athletics and how you've been able to apply them to your life through some of the journeys that you've had, through some of the adversity that you've overcome, and. So you are now removed from college and, and from that experience and you are into the, into the working world like uh, most of us are at this point. I think you had said right in the beginning of the conversation that teaching wasn't something that was on your radar, at least when you went to school yeah, maybe right. to, to start with. So you're a teacher now at CBA, Christian Brothers Academy in Syracuse. What happened there? How, how did how did you fall into a position where arguably you could say that you are able to make more of an impact than you can in most other positions that you could have, or most other professions that you could have gone into? Great question. So I went to so I went to Lemoyne and I graduated with a major in communication and a minor in business. And where I am now as a teacher. I still don't have my teaching degree, which we'll talk a little bit more in a little bit. But right out of college, I went to a medical device sale company called Welch Allen here in Syracuse, New York. They sell all, all the, uh, basically all the medical equipment that you see in your 
practitioner's uh, office. So I worked for them for about two, two to three years. Um, so I worked in, you know, I worked in a cubicle. Uh, I went in every day at about eight o'clock. I went home at a, every day at about five o'clock. And something, it just wasn't adding up to me. Going through my cancer, my cancer treatment, and then going uh, outside of outside of college and to work, it just wasn't adding up. I, I adding up. I just felt like I needed to be doing something a little bit more. But I guess the the reason I took that job is because right out of college. I think society places this emphasis on that you have to get out of the college and you have to go find a job. And if you don't go find a job right away, then you might be deemed unsuccessful. That's just how I felt coming out of college. So it was kind of the first opportunity that I got and I just jumped on it without really internalizing what it really meant for my career. So that's what enabled me to get stuck when I was there. I just kind of felt like I was going through emotions and that I needed to be doing um, something much more impactful and important in my life. And not too long after that, I got a call from the principal at CBA. Now, the principal, uh, Matt Keel, uh, I, I still call him Mr. Keel because he was actually my math teacher when I went to CBA. He also coached me in basketball and baseball as well here at CBA. And we always were pretty tight, so we always kept in, in touch when I was in college and when I was outside of college. And just out of the blue, when I was just sitting there trying to figure out, right, maybe this isn't the best path for me. I'll stop blue. I get a text from, uh, I'm going to call him Mr. Keel, that, hey, you want to go grab some lunch? And, you know, so I said, yeah, absolutely. Grab some Let's catch up. So about two weeks later, we go and we grab lunch. And before, like, we even sit down, he just goes, uh, I want to offer you the job to be seventh grade math teacher. And my first response <laughs> in my head was, this guy's got to be crazy. I didn't go to, I didn't go to college for, for teaching. I have no background in, um, in academics. And I just said, I was like, uh, I said, are you, are you sure? I mean, I would, I would love to. I want to change. And I can see how teaching might be a nice little segue for me. Transition to my professional platform, but I don't have everything that you need to be a teacher. And so it works out with a private school. You don't really have to be uh, certified to teach. And and he told me that and he said, "Listen, what CBA is based upon? So the founder of CBA, his name is St. John Baptist Taylor. He founded a Christian Brothers School because they because he wanted teachers to first teach the students." And then teach subject matter second. So he was a big believer that if you don't communicate with people, if you can't be in touch with someone, if you can't understand how someone, then there's no way that you're going to be able to teach them to be active in the social science. You have to be able to relate with someone. And I and I have a, a sign in my classroom that says that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And within talking with Mr. Keel, he just gave off that, that vibe where he trusted me to form relationships with students, um, and then everything else after that uh, would fall. Now, go, going to high school, it did help me that I was in all honors math class, <laughs> and I did I did still take some business classes in college. So it wasn't that it wasn't too difficult uh, with the subject matter. And and to this day, in my fourth year of teaching, uh, that's that's still absolutely uh, long true to me is. 
I can teach these kids anything as long as they know that I care. And I feel like that's anything with um, with a president, a CEO. You look at all these successful companies, um, a lot of them, you look at the, the people up top, and they're doing so much work outside. You know, they're, they're helping their society. And they're really investing a lot of money, a lot of resources into employees. And, and employees are wanting to stay because they know that people are the most important thing to making things successful, whether it's teaching, whether it's sports, whether it's coaching, which I've come to realize the last four years as well um, as I'm a coach here. In outside world, as I talk to other people, you can't accomplish anything in your area, in your walk of life, if you aren't able to work with and you aren't able to communicate with people because the person is the most important thing. And that's just something I've learned about my last four years. I love that perspective and I love that you want to care so much that you want to be able to have an impact that you're not just, you're not just teaching kids their schoolwork, right? You're teaching them about more than just schoolwork. You're teaching them about aspects of life and how to communicate and how to be good people towards one another. What I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into is when there's that inevitable disconnect, when you have a student that you can't get through like you do with most others, or they're just not responding, what, whatever the, the reasoning is behind it. How do you deal with tougher, difficult situations like that when obviously it's it's clear that you still want to make an impact, but maybe the, the person on the other side isn't as receptive? Yeah. Also, that, that's a great question, and I have run into situations like that, and the best advice that I have been able to come out with that is you have to just give it time, especially the age that I'm, that I'm teaching. I'm teaching 13, uh, 12 and 13-year-olds, and they know when you are not true to yourself, <laughs> and once they, once they realize that you're not being true and you're just kind of being fake, as they say, then they, they sniff that out, and they can just... And they'll just kind of lose focus and they'll lose interest in you as a, in you as a person and as a teacher. So just the ability, of, like I said, of just caring for every single person goes a long way. I've had teachers growing up where they were just more concerned about a group of other than the whole class. And I've realized that if you show everybody the decent respect that they deserve and if you give it time, I found out that kids will eventually come around now. Now they might not come around in seventh grade. I've had a couple of students that, that are now um, that are now freshmen, that are now sophomores, that have come back and that that where I thought that I had failed them because we didn't form that connection, they have come back and said, you know what, thank you for not blowing me off. Thank you for just consistently being there and just consistently asking me if I'm okay. Even if I didn't say anything, I appreciate that now that I'm older that you were still there even though when I was kind of blowing you off. So the biggest thing that I would tell people is that you have to be, one, you have to do what you love because if you do what you love, then you care and you, and you can show that and you could show caring from the start of the day to the end of the day doing what you love. Kids and students, they will see that in you and later on in life, they'll come back and be like, you know what? You really did care for me. And I appreciate that. When you get your students each year, are they, is that a brand new slate of students that come in? Oh, that's what makes it great. Brand new every year. Okay. Again, like that, that, that whole, that whole change thing. 
so I could go a whole year, and then the following year I have a I have 125 new students. So it's trying to form relationships 125 more times. Um, so it's that constant <laughs> change, right? You gotta, right? You got you gotta understand that everyone thinks teaching is okay. You just do the same thing every year, but, but you're not. The subject matter is the same. Right. It changes right year to year, but the, all the kids change, and that's who you're teaching. Um, and that's the biggest thing that people. I think don't understand about teaching is that is that a lot of people think that they can do it because they can just get up there and they can teach their subject matter, but it's it's the kids mm-hmm. uh, that you're that you're teaching. You got to teach them first before you're able to teach your subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I was asking that, and I'm glad you said that it's 125 kids because this will expand the question a little bit more. But I'm really interested to know maybe now what'd you say four years of teaching? So maybe you have some type of average uh, that you can think back on, but uh, how long does it take each year to really get comfortable? I know it's like, I'm I'm not going to try and nitpick it for each 125 individual students, but how, (laughs) how long in general does it take each year to get to that point where you're all kind of comfortable with each other and, and get that feel that you're looking to cultivate in the classroom? Oh, God, that's probably one of the best questions I've ever heard. <laughs> the, the reason is because we live in a microwave society, right? You know what that means. We always want something else. And we, if it doesn't instantly come, then we kind of just give up and we go to the next best thing. So to go back to your question, I mean, I, I had, I've had classes where I've connected with them. Probably, it probably takes, you know, so we're, we're in December, so September, October. I probably, it probably takes the quickest November. So it probably takes about three months until the whole class, I feel like, is, is connected. This year, it's taking a little bit longer, but as we get into December, I'm starting to really finally see um, the connection that I'm forming with the students. So this year it's, it's taken a little bit longer. Now I'm not to say that's a bad thing, right? Because as individual as individuals, we're all we're all different. But yeah, that that's probably one of the most unique and great questions that I've ever been been asked. Because we always want the instant approval. Yeah. And we gotta be able just to step to just to step back and to understand that, you know, you can't build it all in a day. And some days some years it might take three months. Some years it'll take five months. You just trust it. Um, if eventually, if you just keep at it, then eventually um, it, things will be where they should be. Again, I, I think your perspective is spot on there. And I think as a society, we get ourselves into trouble when we look at only the end result of somebody's life or a certain event. We don't, we don't see everything that led up to that point. Like if you break down, I use Abraham Lincoln all the time because it's pretty well-known name still. And he's a great example of somebody that failed time and time again before he became on, he became arguably the greatest president that the country's ever had. Right. So it's, it's one of those things that when you're teaching, when you're coaching, those things are both obviously super relatable. And and it bothers me. The reason I'm asking is because it bothers me personally when somebody, whether it's a parent or just somebody from the outside expects everything to be 100% the way they're supposed to be 
on day one, after practice one, after only a couple hours together. Like you could, you can't just do it that way. So uh, I, I love that you have the, the foresight to be able to see that every year and be able to treat each group differently and understand. And, and I think that without obviously saying it for you, you just talked about how this year's taking a little bit longer, but I didn't get the sense that that from from the tone of your voice that that's really frustrating you at all. It's just, hey, this is a different group of, of girls. We're rolling with the punches. We're learning. And, and now it's starting to, it took a couple extra weeks, but now it's starting to come into its own. And, and, I, and I just really want to acknowledge you for that because I, I think that's a special attribute that can make you successful in, both as a teacher and as a coach. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's why that's why I go back and I just applaud you. What a great question that was. <laughs> um, and you know, great right before we, I, I hopped on, I had basketball practice, and it was probably one of the worst practices we had. And I sat down. I, I I'm, I'm starting to get frustrated. I'm like, you know what? We're only we're only three weeks in. Um, you know, things are supposed to be messy. Like, how are they supposed to be good if they can't be messy <laughs> first? Like, you just can't jump in there, and you just can't be running the perfect offense. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have to you have to see how things. Are, aren't supposed to be in order to be able to see uh, how they are. So that was, uh, that's a, that's a great question. That was going to stick with me for a while. I like that. <laughs> you can, you can use it. You can, uh, when, when you're interviewing people in the future, yeah. you can, you can steal that question. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right. Consider it done. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, uh, I want to, I, I know we're, uh, for this point, I'm, I'm going back to we're we're backtracking a little bit and we're going back to, uh, to college and, and everything that happened there. But I, I want to, again, acknowledge and highlight that you were recognized for something that's pretty special. Uh, you were recognized as the, the man of the year in the Northeastern 10 Conference uh, for you played baseball at Lemoyne and um, obviously talked about uh, everything that you went through with, with the cancer and the adversity that surrounds that. I, I just love for to, to hear from your perspective, your, your personal perspective on this, what that, that moment was like. Cause I, I can't imagine it. Obviously I haven't experienced something like that, but I I'd have to imagine if I could, that that was something that was pretty special. So again, right. That uh, I'll talk, we'll get into it a little bit deeper. Um, not, not too long, but again, that's not everything that I did. It's, it's going to be a group of people and then you'll hear me talk about them, but so going into my senior year, I talked about uh, my illness and my sickness. So with that surgery of the total knee replacement and the chemotherapy, um, I wasn't able to play any impactful sports again. So that means I can't run. Um, I still I can't play basketball. I can't play. I can't play baseball. But I could still do things rotationally. So now um, I, I'm, I'm a big cyclist. So I, I ride my bike uh, when I can. I play a lot of golf. Um, so obviously going into my senior year, it finally hit me that my career in athletics, collegiate athletics was over. And that was probably one of the, the toughest thing that was thrown my way. Other than, uh, other than my diagnosis, being told that my, my days of being a college athlete are over because we identify ourselves with, with everything that we do. And I really sure. identified uh, myself with being a college um, student athlete, and me and taking the athlete out of that, it kind of really, it kind of really crumbled me for a little bit. But I didn't want it to define me. I didn't want something that was out of my control defining me. It goes back to um, how I was raised. Don't complain. Find the next best thing. 
And so then one of my one of my teammates, so going through everything, one of my teammates held a quick uh, fundraiser. Kind of just at first was just to raise funds for my family to help with medical costs. So they raised about five thousand dollars, and they presented to me early in my senior year, and that's when it kind of hit me that I can actually start doing good for others with that. So I, I talked to my buddy Nate Reynolds, who's actually going to be in, in my wedding uh, next weekend. Nice. So I asked him, I was like, listen, can, can we use this not for my medical expenses, but can we use this to start a foundation? And and he said, yeah, sure, whatever you want to do with it, we can, we can run with it. And we both, we both had a talk that it's not going to be easy running a foundation. All the behind the scenes work that, that goes with it. it, it's a lot. And we both said, you know what, it doesn't matter. Let's just go ahead, let's start it, and, let, and then let's, let's see what, what happens from there. So throughout my senior year, we worked on raising funds, which is now called the Patrick Reese Foundation. And then I also wanted to do another thing. I also wanted to graduate that spring as well with my fellow class. And I always hear stories about, well, you got to put your academics on hold and everything. Well, I found this as an opportunity to, one, keep my mind off of, you know, off of my treatment, off of what I'm going through, and two, to prove that that I am better than this and that I can, I can take this on. So throughout the year, I still took my classes. So I would spend three years, or I would spend three weeks in the hospital, and then I would spend two weeks outside of the hospital. And with those two weeks, I was able to attend class here and there. But the faculty and, and the staff and the administration at Lemoyne, they were fantastic. Where when I was in the, in the hospital, we still set up systems of communication to still be able to get uh, all my work done. So I wanted to be able to graduate with the class that I went into. And so doing that, and so I, I was fortunate to finish all my credits and graduate that, that spring, as well as build up the Patrick Weiss, um Foundation, which uh, to date we've raised over um, $200,000. Wow. And a, a lot of that goes to an endowment. And what that endowment does is it grows funds that we can use. And what, what it does is we give, um, I say we because um, Nate Reynolds helped me start it. Uh, my best man, who my wife as well, um, is basically he's the one that does all the website stuff. Um, and he's there by my side every step of the way. Uh, my mom, who I would not be able to do it without my mom, and then especially my soon-to-be wife, has really taken this as a second job as well to all be part of this foundation and to work on it and to, and, and, and to uh, keep it up. So, And what it does is we grant high school, uh, college scholarships to kids that are either going through cancer or that are cancer survivors because going through the whole process, I was fortunate enough to have parents that were able to foot the bill, but I realized how expensive the process is and that people stop what they're doing. They put their life on hold so they can put and they can pour all their resources into fighting this terrible disease. And I didn't want that. I felt how great it was to still continue to go to class. I felt how great it was to not worry about a single bill, to still continue my education. And I want families, I want other kids, young adults out there to understand that we will help you support your education. 
just stay with it because on the other side, it does get a whole lot better. And just if you, if you got your education now, then you might not pick it up in the future. So a lot of foundations, what they do is, is they support, you know, they give, they give money for, for medical expenses. Um, and there's a lot of that stuff out there, but doing research, there's not a lot of uh, foundations out there that grant, that give grants for scout, for college scholarships. So those kids can pay for their education. So that way they can still pay for their medical bills as well. Um, and, and kind of take on both of those uh, pieces, so to, so to speak at this time. So that's kind of what, um, foundation does. And I guess to go back to what your, uh, your question was, how did it feel that the Northeast 10, um, granted me again, I'm, I'm humbled. It, it, it's not me. I was just, I was just placed in it and I was the person out front of people. So people saw me, but it, it really goes to, you know, all my buddies that, that continue to support me. It goes to my mom, my dad, my two older brothers, my younger sister, my aunts, my uncle that are all in town and especially, um, my wife or my soon to be wife for all their continued support. It's, it's really, they're the ones that make this possible. So people will always tell me what a great job I'm doing. And I got to tell them, you know, I, I'm literally, I'm literally just the face of it. These people behind me are the ones putting in all those long hours outside of their, their work to do that. And I guess, so the Northeast 10 recognized all that work that they were doing, um, that we were doing. Um, so that, that kind of, um, that award is basically more than just myself. Yeah. Obviously makes it a really special recognition when you can include all those, those people who are so close to you and that you love so much and that have been able to support you in the good times and in the bad. So uh, I appreciate you telling us about that in the foundation because I was going to ask you about that. So I'll make sure I put the link to the website if people want to get involved or learn more about the foundation. I'll put that in the show notes for folks for easy reference that are listening to this episode. But we are unfortunately getting close to our time here. And I know you, as you've mentioned, although this episode will air after, but you are getting ready for a wedding. So I don't want to keep you too much longer. (laughs) About two weeks. So yes, yes. (laughs) The wife's good. She's at, she's at book club right now. So, so (laughs) we still got some time if you want. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, um, so the show is called dynamic leaders and obviously you have showcased here today in the short amount of time that we've been able to chat just how much of a dynamic leader you are in both your personal experiences and the way that you are impacting young girls these days in their, uh, in their uh, formative years, I guess we'll say. But I always like to give my guests an opportunity, and I know uh, it's, it's difficult to narrow it down to one person, but I always like to give my guests an opportunity to shout out somebody that has impacted them in in a a way that whether it's leadership or anything that's related to our conversation today. So do you have somebody that you want to give a quick shout out to? Yeah, I do. Um, You know, other than everyone that I talk to, everyone that's close to me has been absolutely fantastic. And I've I've mentioned them throughout our time talking, Um, but maybe to talk maybe about a little, a little bit about someone that maybe more people understand, more people know. It's really two people, and being athletes, obviously, we're, we're drawn to the athletics world. Um, and one person is, is John Wooden. Growing up, I always knew who John Wooden was, and I knew he was this great coach. Um, but it wasn't until recently, in, in my recent two or three years, 
that I realized why. And, and one of the things that I came away with John Wooden is every time there's an article about him, I, the first thing I do is I grab it and I make <laughs> sure I read it because that guy is just a whirlwind, is a hurricane of just, uh, of just knowledge. And it's incredible the things that he says. And one recently was the TED Talk um, that he did. I don't know if you saw the TED Talk. You probably got a couple, to be honest. Uh, but the one I saw, it's about 15 minutes long. It's basically about just him talking about how much success that he had. Throughout the whole thing, not once does he mention winning. <laughs> so here's a guy that, you know, has won, I think it was like, I think he's won 10 national championships at UCLA. He won, I know, he won seven in a row. And not once did he bring up the word winning. The, the prompt person, the person that's doing an interview with him, how can you never um, brought up winning? And he goes, if you take care of all the little things, never late. If, if, if my if my players are new, I tell them never to criticize the teammate. If you take care of all the little things, and I take care of teaching the person, then winning will happen. You may not win all the time, but winning will be present, and you will have the opportunity. Um, but so I, I take away as a coach and as a teacher, it's not that end goal in winning. It's it's the process that you do. It's, it's if you if you take care of those little details um, with your players, with your students. If you just teach that all the little things matter, and if you form those relationships, if you communicate with them, then in the end, you may not win, but winning is definitely a possibility. And I've I've actually learned that the last uh, uh, the last couple of years. It, it, I just thought it was just so amazing that throughout this time, when he was talking, he never won. And then the other guy, Tony Bennett, that he comes to mind too because he's just won a national championship. And the quote that just is in my head that Tony Bennett at Virginia, and he goes, you know what, winning isn't actually that great. It's more about the relationships. It's more about the time um, that I get with my players. And then he's like, winning, I could care less about winning. I just do my job. And I, if I coach these guys um, the way that they should be coached as human beings, as men that are supposed to go outside after basketball, and be successful in, in the world. If I do my job at that, um, then that, that, that's all I care about. And, and look at that. He, he focuses on his players, and look at that. He's the, he's the national championship for Virginia. So it's just two people that um, that I believe just do the right thing. They don't care about winning. They care about the details. They care about what makes a person tick, and they care about reaching these, uh, these young student athletes. And it just happens that, you know, they're, they're some of the most winningest coaches out there. Those are both amazing shout outs. And I think we've talked pretty extensively about the relationship building aspect that you talked about with Coach Bennett and then with Coach Wooden and being process driven. It's hilarious to think about, but he had a conversation with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, just like he did with all of his student athletes at UCLA, their first practice how to tie their shoes correctly, how to pull their socks up on their feet and put their shoes on correctly so that they wouldn't get blisters. (laughs) And it's, it's shave, how to be on time. Yeah. All those little things. Yeah. And it's hilarious to think about when, you know, especially someone like Kareem, who's obviously gone on to not only have an amazing basketball career, but has a very nice career off the court as well. And is a super influential person in his own right. And it's just amazing that, those little aspects of what you teach 
matter much more than like you said the the winning i, I mean the, the winning will happen i think naturally if you take care of those those little aspects but it's not what should be the motivator behind it it should be just the process driven and relationship building those should be the primary thing so i love that you shouted out those two guys because yeah. i think that really yeah. And then, and then, you know, you got Tony Bennett who just turns down a multi-million dollar in <laughs> Virginia. Right. And what's that saying to his player? You know, like he's in it for, for the kids. He, right. he doesn't care about the, the dollar amount that, that gets put in his, his bank account. And he told the school, you know, take some of that money. I think it's like, take like a million dollars of that money that you're going to, you know, pay me and, and put it towards a career development program for those players, for his past players, for his team. Like put in a program that will prepare his players for career opportunities outside basketball. And it, it was literally the worst. It just came right out of his mouth. Like, no, put that money to my player. I mean, how do you not want to play for a guy like that? Or how do you not want to read more about a guy? Or how do you just not want to, you know, go out and grab a beer with a guy? Yeah, absolutely. We need more of the, we need more leaders like Tony Bennett, like coach Wooden, but, and like yourself, but we are getting there. Things, <laughs> things can always be better. We're always learning and, I think that's one of the the great powers of a podcast like this is we can have people tell their incredible stories like you have today and hopefully influence them to be better than they were before they listen to this episode. So Pat, I, I, again, this has been just a lot of fun for me. It's great to hear that. Obviously you're healthy and you're happy. You've got the wedding to look forward to and a lot of other really great things that are going on in your life. But I just want to say Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on the podcast, share your story, share your guidance and advice. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I can't wait to see what the future holds for you. Yeah, Kyle, thanks again for uh, thinking of me. It's always good just to help out good people. And this is something that all of us should just should uh, should strive to do. Um, so again, thank you for, uh, for having me on. And it was a blast to um, have this platform to share some of uh, my insights that I have. I appreciate it.